everyone. If you would, please turn to the book of Philippians. As we finished up our study in the book of Colossians, we are now going to jump in to starting our new series, our study on the book of Philippians. Um, and so if you want to be reading ahead throughout the next few weeks, probably take us two months or so at least to get through the book of Philippians. And um, uh, I would encourage you to do that. And what we're looking at is where the gospel is found in Philippians, and it's all over the place. So the book of Philippians is, is kind of a, uh, uh, it's known to be kind of a, 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 ch- a, a chapter for which we have fondness. People really like the book of, 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 of Philippians. Uh, there's an encouraging tone to the book of Philippians, and it is somewhat different. Some of the other letters, you know, in the book of Romans, you know, Paul is being very uh, erudite and wise, and he's, he's unpacking really complex, you might even say cosmic theology of insight into the inexhaustible plan of God. Other letters, he's clearly responding to issues and problems. You look at the, at the, at the you read the book of uh, Galatians, for example, and then Paul's kind of punchy in that, in, in that book, and he's, he's kind of, um, uh, it's a little bit more confrontational in tone. And then you read the book of Corinthians, and you're just like, my goodness gracious, what a church. Uh, such a mess, and it gives us a little of encouragement, and, 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 and Paul is writing correction. This is essentially, this particular epistle is the outgrowth of what essentially is a thank you note to the church in Philippi. Paul is in prison, most likely in Ephesus, and first century prisons were not like the modern day prison system. Unless you had outside support from family and friends, you did not eat. Your food came from the outside support of the people around you that were aware that you were in prison. And so it's, high, it's, it's significant, it's certainly significant for Paul that the Philippian church is willing to even send a delegation. And so this man had to take a perilous journey to bring a collection of money to Paul that they gave to him to support him for his survival in prison. Now, this is interesting. This act of love and compassion in which they give him money in order to sustain his survival, Paul interprets that as they're becoming partners with him in the gospel. So it's not just a thank you letter. It is a celebration of the tangible expression of their partnership. And as we're going to see right off the bat, prayer is a significant part of that partnership. It's a significant part to Paul, and it's significant to Paul that they're praying for him. So most certainly prayer is part of that partnership. But what we also know is that it is prayer and practical action in this case giving uh, donating money to Paul to help his survival during his time in prison and so it's very spiritual but also practical that's the way love expresses itself and if love is only concerned for one and the other then it's incomplete and so Paul celebrates this right off the bat so he receives this uh, donation while he's in prison and he writes a letter to simply say thank you and then of course as the spirit moves him we have this beautiful epistle that some may even often call the epistle of joy. So let's walk down this. Essentially, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. And there's kind of three sections to it. The first is your standard opening of the letter. Then it's going to go into prayer. The first, the, the second section is going to articulate why Paul prays for the Philippians. And then the third section we'll look at is what he prays for the Philippians. And it's really important to see because sometimes uh, um, uh, when I talk with evangelicals, one of the first areas of life with which they approach cynicism tends to be their prayer life. But I hope that you can see in the way Paul writes is that prayer is an extension of affection. So anyone for whom you have affection ought to at some time be the recipient of your focused intercession as well. Because as followers of Jesus, this is one of the uh, most accessible ways that we have for uh, communicating our affection is the prayer that we give on behalf of others. But what's beautiful about that is once we get in that place, it often then expands our thinking and our mind or at least positions us to be more mindful of the leading of the Spirit who may be leading us to be even more directly involved in the answers to our prayers than maybe we first anticipated when we fell to our knees. So let's take of these. The opening section is the greeting, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Really important whenever we see these phrases, and you see it very quickly at the very beginning, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm afraid my concern is that we use that phrase, in Christ, in Jesus, uh, as kind of a way of simply uh, metaphorically referring to someone who's part of the Christian faith. That phrase, I hope that you see now after walking through the book of Colossians, Colossians, Colossians is way more in depth than simply saying they're part of a Christian church, a part of the Christian faith. To say that they are in Christ Jesus means they are consciously living out of their union with Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. It means to be united with Christ and recognizing that the place where heaven and earth kiss and meet is right here in our hearts because that's what it means to be part of living this faith is that we are living our life out of a conscious awareness of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so he highlights that and he speaks and he identifies this church in Philippi as being exactly those people. And then he goes into talking about the substance of, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the motive behind his prayer and the substance of his prayer for them. Verse 3, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. You know, it's an unfair thing that a mere mortal presumes to stand up and offer commentary and exposition on the Holy Scriptures. There's so much here that we really can't have time to depart and dive into. And as you all know, I have to fight that temptation. Um, you know, I saw some of you when I said it'll take us a couple of months to get through Philippians and you, and, and you snickered to someone next to you and says, yeah, right, two months. But it's hard, isn't it, when you see all of these beautiful truths that just pop out everywhere. And I think that when you read that sentence from the very beginning, it speaks to me because of how oftentimes I go into prayer from an attitude or a spirit of obligation at best, rather than one rooted in the spirit of gratitude. In fact, oftentimes I might be praying for people precisely because I am not thankful for them. And God needs to do something in their life so that my life becomes much more convenient if they're going to be in it right? And so, but this is not Paul's attitude. What, what, and, and, I, and I say that as a joke, and it is funny because it is the common weakness of our humanity, but I think that we need to be mindful is are we somehow trying to be manipulative in our prayers? Is our prayer really about the good of the individual and the glory of God, or is it about hoping that God will influence some, have some manipulative influence so that they're a lot easier to deal with and to live with? But this is not Paul's attitude. What he says is this, when I pray for you, thanksgiving is the atmosphere of my heart. And I think sometimes the atmosphere of my heart is irritation. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's doubt. Sometimes it's dread. And uh, uh, sometimes it's, um, it's, it's rooted in the despair of not knowing what to do to help someone. All of these are legitimate emotions to experience in prayer, but we can't leave out the one that holds everything together is are we thankful for the people that we're praying for, which includes when we're praying for our enemies and those who are difficult for us. Paul's prayer, but this prayer is, is, is a prayer of a family. You know, it's the, it's the attitude that we bring to bear when we're praying for our close friends and members of our community. It's the attitude we bring to prayer when we're praying for our partners or our children or our children's partners. And so Paul says, the atmosphere of this prayer is one of thanksgiving. It will have an impact on your experience of prayer if you begin with thanksgiving. So almost, not almost, every time we go to gather to prayer, if we can start pressing into expressing gratitude for those for whom we are praying, does that mean our emotions are always going to be on line? Absolutely not. But we want our emotions to follow our prayer, not our prayer to follow our emotions. Not that it's inappropriate to do that. If you open up the Psalms, you can see there's a lot of prayer following emotions. I'm not saying 
that's wrong to do that. But what we want to do is ultimately not rehearse our emotions, but we want to rehearse the truth. And we want to not simply indulge our perspective. We want that to begin there, but move into a position before God where we are now absorbing his perspective on the situation or the people we're praying for. So he says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Look at this, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Do you see how familiar, do you see how prayer here is not simply a Christian discipline, but it flows from his heart because of his affection and the joy that he receives from their mutual partnership and friendship. It, this, this, this letter is littered with that kind of intimate transparency. And he says, I, I'm, I'm praying with joy. And number five, here's where he says it, because of what? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this. And here we read the verse, the famous verse, probably you have a coffee cup with this on it or maybe a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, and, it, and it's right to do so. This is a significant verse for the entire letter, and it certainly is the linchpin of this particular section that we're reading. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank God for this verse and thank God for your coffee cups because we need to rehearse this because we tend to only believe this when we're being successful and good. It is very difficult for us to believe this if we get thrown into a cycle where we go head down deeply in our addiction that maybe we've been free of for 10 years. Or maybe when we see the constant repetition of our insecurity and our anger spilling over into the subtle attitudes and words that we live with others and we just, ah, how long am I going to have to contend with the pettiness that lives in my heart? But what we can understand is this, wherever we are, whatever state we're in, however we evaluate it, our failure has no impact on God's faithfulness. And at the end of the day, we stand or fall, not based on our motives or behavior, but on the faithfulness of the one who holds us in place and stand we will because his grace is sufficient. And so... He prays, I am confident of this reality. What God started, he is going to complete. And I know that on your coffee cup, when you read this and you read the word you, you're reading your name in there. And that's fine to make that my story application. But what Paul is saying is more than that. What God has started in this community, Christ Community Church, he will be faithful to complete it. What God is doing in Southern Oklahoma and beyond, he will be faithful to complete it. What he is intending to do with the redemption of his world in which we open our physical eyes and we see that through God's faithfulness, the world has been set right, which is what he's committed to do, he will be faithful to complete it. And we might even experience the joy of realizing that faithfulness is executed through us. That's God's invitation to us to be his partner in his gospel mission. Verse seven, he says, indeed it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. You are all partners with me in grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ. These are such powerful words. You know, all of us, the, the, the New Testament faith stands on the fact that in terms of our, um, um, our, our dignity as image bearers, and in terms of our responsibility of those who participate in the Missio Dei, the mission of God, the structure is a flat leadership structure. It is not a hierarchy. But of course, there are practical um, needs for organization. And so we organize and we, we understand the legality behind what it means to function as an organization. And part of that means that organization needs to pay a staff that can maintain the execution of the, um, 
uh, uh, the needs of the organization. And of course, in our model, that means you'll have a board and then you'll have a senior pastor. And, and oftentimes, folks like me go into this kind of work because we want to be shepherds and we want to walk with the broken. And then we found out that seminary did not prepare us to be CEOs of an organization. And yet that's part of the responsibility, right? I mean, that's part of what you get the big bucks to do, to take responsibility for. But so oftentimes when I get in that mode of wanting to be a better leader and a, and, and a, and a better problem solver for the organization, it is so easy for me to then think of my jobs in terms of problems that I'm called to serve. That I make my weekly task list and I come in with my attitude with, I'm getting paid by the church to go solve their problems. And, and there's a part of that that's real. But my point is, once we do that, we start to move away from our motivation being the affection of Christ and it being the obligation of performance. And as I realized, that's not just something I'm tempted with in vocational ministry. That's something I'm tempted with in my vocation as a parent. That is something that I'm tempted to go into whenever I'm called to walk along with someone as their Timothy, I mean, as their Paul to my Timothy and walk with them in discipleship. This has to flow out of a commitment to radical relationality, not simply, not simply functionality. We have to allow God to create space in our heart that those who we are called to love and serve, that shouldn't just be done out of obligation. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to share something of his affection for those to whom we are called to serve. That is how we maintain motive and dignity in our call to service, is that we allow the affection of Christ. In other words, Lord, keep me from the mistake of serving anyone that I haven't taken time to cultivate the love that you have for them and let it exist in my heart. I really think it's a lazy thing to say, well, I love them, but I don't like them because that's not Christ. I understand what's behind it. Sometimes we have to go beyond our emotions of like and dislike and still serve someone in the name of Jesus. And that is noble to not be a slave to our emotions. It is not noble to stay there because the truth is Jesus likes them. And if we want to operate with the affection of Christ, it is not enough for me to say, I will serve them because I love them, but I don't like them. I have to press into those deep places of our, my heart and see, do I really believe that the Holy Spirit can work a miraculous transformation in my attitude toward those I may be being called to serve who my, I might find difficult? And so Paul models for us, ministry is effective because it flows from the affection of Christ. But that's not just true of ministry. That is true for every significant relationship in our lives our, 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 our partners, spouses, our children, what they need is more than just our best efforts. They need us to be willing conduits for the love and affection of Christ. That's what will bring healing and liberty and transformation and blessing to their lives. So this is why he prays, but now let's spend the next 20 minutes or so looking at the content of his prayer. We see it in verses 9, 10, and 11, and essentially every verse is a sentence or at least a partial sentence in which the content of Paul's prayer is articulated. He says, this is the first thing I pray, but I'm praying it in order that this would happen, and I'm praying that in order that this would happen. So he's seeing this chain-like connection between his prayer and the consequences of his prayer and the broader requests that he's making based on his confidence of God's response to his prayer. That may sound a little convoluted, so let's walk through it a little bit. Verse 9, he says, and I pray this that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness this is so this is such a powerful phrase i'm going to do my youth pastors thing and say Boys and girls, please repeat after me, the fruit of righteousness. Thank you so much. There are free mints for you on your way out the door. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through 
Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God that comes through Jesus Christ the glory and praise of God so if we look at these three verses we are now creating for ourselves a scriptural prayer list that we can pray on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of others so when you don't know what to pray if you're Pentecostal, you can pray in tongues. We've got that part covered. But if you're not Pentecostal and you need to have kind of a, a prayer, organized prayer list in English, well, instead of just going to the internet, look to the scripture. What's the substance that the, that the scriptural leaders call us to pray for on behalf of others? Here you have it right now. Now you've got a great three-point prayer list that you can begin using when you pray for me today. Number one is that, your, that, that, that the love, that the Philippians' love will keep growing, keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. Number two, that they would, with this growing love and discernment, they would be equipped to approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. And number three, so that they could be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Boom, boom, boom. Look at that nice three-point prayer list. There's my little self-help talk in the middle of my sermon. Let's take a look at these and dig into them just a little bit for just a few minutes as we enjoy doing from time to time in here. First of all, he prays that, that love will grow in knowledge and wisdom and discernment. Love will grow in knowledge and wisdom and discernment. So one of the things that's necessary in order for love to grow is knowledge and wisdom and discernment. Sometimes we can get in these traps, especially since we live in a time that is, is, thrives on binary polarization. And what I mean is this, there are two options, it's this or that. And if I pick this and you pick that, we are now opposed to one another. And my goodness, it's, Everything from social movements to politics to the kind of uh, whether or not you, 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 you know, roast and grind your own coffee beans or you settle for that embarrassing Folgers freeze-dried stuff, which I personally enjoy and my wallet enjoys as well. But we polarize everything. There's always this binary, and sometimes we even do that. Well, is it about the head or about the heart? The answer is yes. And if we isolate one to the other, then we are living in an incomplete expression of the blessings of the gospel. You can be wise and discerning and grow in knowledge and still have your heart expand in love. You can have your heart expand in love and still not allow your brain to shrink to nothing. We can, we, we can engage in both of these. And in fact, the call is for love to be connected and increasing, not simply based on the increase of, of emotion or affection, but that literally by chasing after knowledge and wisdom, it is one of the means that God has ordained for our hearts to expand in love. Now, we know it doesn't always do that, right? Love, knowledge can puff up and love can build up. We do understand the dangers of intellectual pride, but there's also dangers in anti-intellectual pietism as well. And so we seek to embrace these, um, these compliments to one another that our love increases as our knowledge increases. In other words, um, we recognize that love thrives in the presence of healthy revelation. So when I say knowledge and discernment, this is not simply reading more books, although it can be inclusive of that, but it's talking about that revelation knowledge where as we learn and grow and increase, we allow the information in our brains to filter into the realities of our heart and it motivates our actions. Love thrives in the presence of ongoing healthy revelation. In other words, your call is to continue discovering more about who you are in Christ and discovering more about the nature of the God who created you. At no time is that journey ever intended to cease, to stop, or to pause. In fact, our, the ongoing relevance of our faith rests in a posture of continuing to seek after whatever revelation the Spirit wants to bring. Paul's way of saying this and articulating it in Galatians is that we are called simply to constantly keep in step of the Spirit. Why? Because love thrives 
in the presence of healthy revelation. And by contrast, love is hindered by toxic belief. Bad doctrine has consequences. Bad ideas about God has consequences because it places limits on our understanding of our own dignity and therefore places limits on our understanding of the dignity of the other. So love is hindered by toxic belief, which is why we are always engaging in the process of discernment of what really are the ideas and the doctrines and the beliefs about ourselves, the world, and about our God and about others that are driving our assumptions, that are driving the narrative that's constantly taking place between our ears and that consequently are driving the kind of lifestyle choices that we make or the kinds of actions that we pursue pursue this is why my friends you must pay attention to your own inner conflicts with beliefs and doctrine and I know that that puts me in a little position to be a target right because some of you are saying well glad I told you you told me that already that I have a list for you we will be having Rubens this week but you're probably going to get indigestion that's fine because you should never take something at face value just because I'm up here and I'm the one saying it you know, sometimes I'm going to be preaching and the Spirit of God might say, uh-uh, mm-mm, no, don't pick that up right now. And why is he saying that? Because I'm probably saying something wrong or in error. Why would that be? Because I'm a, human, I'm a fallible human being just like you. But the same is true for every author whose name is on the front of the book that you pick up. Everyone that you plug into their podcast or if you're still into watching uh, church on TV or on the internet we are always called to pay attention to those little checks in our spirits about what we're picking up and placing into the, uh, the, the, the file cabinet of information and knowledge that directs our actions up here in this brain of ours but I say that because what I am shocked by is the number of times that I, the most frequent comment I have about sermons, if they are uh, the ones that are uh, complimentary, which is all we're going to focus on this morning. The others are rare, and but, but we're open. You bring any complaint to the third floor anytime, Monday through Friday here at the church. Uh, it's our complaint department. Now, um, no, I just said you should. You should engage that process of discernment. But, but one of the interesting comments I hear from people is this. On the surface, sometimes you say things that seem out of the ordinary for traditional interpretations. But most often when you do, I realize you are saying something that was already present in my heart. I just have yet to get the language to express it. Which means what those people are saying is they're not responding to my sermons, my great information, my hours spent in preparation and reading. They are, they are bearing witness to the truth that the Spirit has already placed in their own soul. And that, my friends, ought to be your highest authority over what any man says to you. And so, and so we engage that process. We pay attention to our inner conflicts with beliefs and doctrine. I mean, haven't how many times, Lord knows, how many times I have ignored the voice in the Holy Spirit because my authority figures were telling me I was obligated to both believe and teach something that was in conflict with my heart. But the first thing that I learned in ministry training is to ignore the voice of the Spirit in my heart and submit to the voice of external authority. And I got really good at it. And you know what? Over time, we all get really good at it. We're just going to suppress that, put it in a storage closet, and never open it up again, and just trust that the experts or the people that are getting the paychecks know what they're saying. I'm not going to make any more comment on that. I'll just let it hang out there like that lest I get in the flesh. But we have to learn to cultivate an awareness of that tension. Because I would say not only is it okay to do that, but it is our responsibility to question ideas 
And when I say that, I don't mean it for the purpose of policing others. You know, I'm speaking to those of you that are really hoping your partners just listen to what I had to say. I, I'm not talking about on behalf of others. I'm talking that on behalf of yourself. Because you know what? We have to acknowledge that God uses different truth in different seasons of our lives. And what may be bringing life to me right now might not bring life to you. It might bring confusion and frustration. I would say, then put a pin in it. Go back to the place where your joy and peace is found and trust that God is using the revelation of that season to take you where you need to be. So we can't just say it's always this or it's always that. We don't know that. Haven't you grown by being exposed to two different opposing ideas that you have to emphasize over the, one over the other in, um, in depending on what season of life you're in? Because most of God's truth is a paradox. We have a word for that. It's paradoxical. If you would like to think about the journey of truth as taking a ride on a paradox cycle, how does a bicycle work? It works because one side, in this case, in this illustration, it is the left, needs to be emphasized and, 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 and pressure needs to apply and I need to relax the pressure on the right and let that rotation happen. But that if I stop there and camp out there with just putting the tension on the left, I'm not gonna go very far. I have to discern when then the opposite tension has to be applied. I need to relax on this revelation and dive into this one. And that's how we move forward by holding truth and tension in our hearts and minds, not camping out on one side or the other and then just going in circles or coming to a complete standstill. So we discern, we discern what's true for the season. And just because something's not right for me in this season doesn't mean that now I'm authorized to tell Adam he needs to change his belief in that. Now that's between him and the Holy Spirit, but I am responsible for the discernment of the spirit that is awakened in my own heart. And that's exactly what he says. He prays that that, 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 that knowledge and that wisdom would result in a love that is discerning, that can discern and recognize what is superior. And so that's his second request in verse 10, that this love will result in moral discernment. Now, this is really important here because again, we live in the polarization of the binary and we have to get, we have to recognize that is the spirit of our age and we have to choose to not participate in it. We've got to back up a little bit uh, from that. And, and, and because you see that, that folks want to make enemies of things that ought not be enemies. And my friends, love and discernment do not have to be enemies. You can actually do both. You can be both discerning and loving, but you've got to be wise. You have to recognize the reality of our world. There are some groups that emphasize a sentimental love that shies away from the practice of any discernment. And my friends, this is not love. Con contrary, there are some groups who emphasize a discernment that restricts the expression of love. We're discerning, and there's a certain behaviors that we won't allow. Oh, really? How did you accomplish that? How did you eradicate or see a transformation of those behaviors? Oh, we kicked them out. If they were committing those, we just told, made sure they knew they weren't welcome to be part of our group. Well, congratulations, enjoying the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But it's not the gospel. We can be both discerning and loving. We don't have to limit one in favor of the other. Followers of Jesus embrace both love and discernment. Discernment is applying wisdom to the consequences and the behavior. This is really critical. It is applying wisdom to the, con to, to the consequences and behavior. Judgment, by contrast, is applying levels of worth toward those who, experiences, who experience the consequence of their behavior. So people will quickly say, they, if you say, Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged, they will come to one or two places. It means you can't have any discernment on someone's behavioral choices, or it means that clearly uh, you don't care about holiness and you're just trying to wimp out by saying you're not called to judge. That's how, those are the kinds of conversations I've received uh, through, throughout the years, but, but that's not, judgment has to do with thinking you're an authority over motives. Discernment is saying this choice is producing this consequence. Do you like this consequence? 
No, not really. Well, can I help you by suggesting to avoid this consequence? Maybe we look at the behavioral choice that you're making that's leading into this consequence, and maybe we exercise some discernment about whether or not you need to learn a different way of choosing and behaving. The, all of this, that's not judgment. It's not judgment to tell someone, I see by the blister on your hand after you set your hand on the hot stove that maybe you need to make different choices about whether or not you put your hands on hot stoves. The reply to that is, oh, well, Jesus said you shouldn't judge me. No, that's discerning the behavior. Now, if I then adopt an attitude, I am way morally superior than them because I'm smart enough to not put my hand on the stove. Those idiots, what are they thinking? How stupid can they be? What are their politics really? Are they down the slippery slope of this kind of theology? I mean, that's when judgment comes in. It's when I start projecting onto people's motives and then I apply an assumption of their worth, particularly in, in comparison to myself. My friends, judgment is taking a God-privileged authority over the motives of others. And you will never be successful at that. I, in fact, you make the mistake more with the people you know better because you think it lends more authority to being judgmental over their motives. This is something that only God can do because you know what? Sometimes our motives are a mystery even unto ourselves. I know mine have been. I thought I was motivated by one thing. Then I took some time to talk to a therapist and the Holy Spirit used that to bring a revelation of, wow, my I had no idea that that's what was, that was my motive. I didn't realize how driven by fear and insecurity I was being. I actually called it spiritual discernment and I was deceived. So we don't even, so it, it's the spirit that does that. We can't do that, but that doesn't mean we're not discerning about the wisdom of choices. We do not put limits on love in the name of discernment. We allow love to direct the spirit of our discernment. Discernment doesn't direct love. Love directs discernment. And then we keep these in balance. And then finally, in closing, he says this. He prays that the Philippians will be filled with the fruit of righteousness, verse 11. All right, this word righteousness, it's coming up. It's a big word. There are lots of implications to this word. But if you will look up Google interlinear Bible and just go to the Greek lexicon and start reading about the history of this word and what it means, I think that you'll make some very important discoveries. My first draft had all this nerdy facts that proved my point, and I thought, well, that's silly, and that's going to put everyone to sleep. I highlighted and hit delete, and I wept a little bit when I hit delete because you all were going to be really impressed with my research abilities and the new theological terms that I had learned. Um, but in summary, the, in summary, in the New Testament, and I did put this in quotations from the lexicon, righteousness simply means the approval of God. Now, this is really careful because most of the time, you are never using it that way. When you use the term righteousness, you are contrasting righteousness and unrighteousness. And what you're really doing is defining it as morality and immorality. This term is not about morality. For one thing, there is no unrighteousness or immorality in God. When you see the phrase, the righteousness of God, what it is talking about is his righteous approval of you because of the work of Jesus Christ. So righteousness is not moral and immoral. Righteousness means the approval of God. So for example, the story of the prodigal son, we have the story of this man who asked for his inheritance early. He goes off in wild living and he recognizes he's made a mistake. His only hope is that maybe the father would allow him to be a servant in his house. And so he comes to the father and he discovers that the father is found waiting. And then upon waiting, the father is found running. And you have to understand even that imagery is not very dignified. They wore robes. You know what they had to do in order to run? Gird their loins. You ever hear that? Be a little embarrassed by it sometimes. Grab the back flap, pull it up like a big onesie diaper and take off on your sprints. This is what the father would have done because his mercy and his love doesn't care about the dignity of the perceptions of man. 
He did this undignified way to express the power of his undeniable affection for his son. Where does the righteousness come in? The son falls. Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. What does he do? Bring the best robe. Put it on my son. Shoes for his feet. A ring for his finger. That robe is the righteousness of God. It reminds the son of his true identity because the son is tempted to take his identity cues from his behavior and the consequences of that behavior like we all are this is what i chose this is who i am who you are is defined by that robe of righteousness that god wraps around you that is the righteousness of god that is the approval of god so the question becomes very important how do we experience god's approval and this is the shocking simplicity of the gospel we experience god's approval by trusting that we have god's approval irregardless of our works not of works lest anyone should boast boy that's really hard how do I trust God's approval when I don't feel it? You just trust that you have it. How do I trust God's approval with all the shame that's in my heart because I know the reality of who I am? You trust that you have it because of the revelation of the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't just speak to God's glory, it speaks to your dignity. And it speaks to the identity that your father has given you. And but even though it's so simple, it's the most important part of your journey. If you can't trust this, you can never be liberated. You can't be free from addiction. You can't be free from cycles of sin. And you won't be very effective in bearing witness to the grace of God. It has to begin with your response to actually trusting and believing in this approval that's been given to you. We trust that we have his approval as his gift resulting from humanity's resurrection from the dead in the resurrection of Christ. Whoa, Artie, we were just getting ready to land the plane and go eat roast. What do you mean humanity's resurrection? I'm glad you asked. Let's close with this idea. What the New Testament teaches us, we're going to look at a passage in Ephesians, but if you really want to dive into that, there are a few in his letters to the Corinthians, but the real big one is probably in Romans chapter 5. I would encourage you to spend some time mulling over that chapter this afternoon because what we see taught in the new testament particularly in the writings of paul is that the death consequences of the first adam are obliterated in the resurrection of the last adam the death consequences of the first adam are obliterated in the resurrection of the last adam and your willingness to believe it or not believe it to trust it or not trust it to see yourself in light of it or to not see yourself in light of it doesn't change its reality. Truth just doesn't care about our emotions, does it? The death consequences, the, so what do you mean by that? Well, let's look at Ephesians. It'll be up on the overhead and it's in your notes. Ephesians chapter two, verses four through nine, very famous verse. We'll wrap up in looking at this. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love he had for us. I, I just don't have time, folks. But look at that motive. A lot of theologians are going to tell you lots of motives about God. Some will actually say that he's motivated by his love for himself. And there's merits in that. I'm not dissing that. Some will, were usually taught to say that God does what he does for his own glory. And there's a truth that's spoken there, but it's all incomplete. The truth is, God does what he does because of his affection for us. That's his motive. Because of his great love for us, verse 5, look at this, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace, Ephesians. You are saved by grace. He also raised us, me and you, Ephesians, up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. 
And here's my simple question for you. In not answering according to the theology of your tradition, in not answering according to the emotions of your experience, in taking right now your authority being the authoritative scripture and looking at this one in particular, when were you saved? Because we've all been taught to say it probably happened at False Creek. It probably happened in children's church when you were convinced to come forward and you were even given a prayer to recite and said, now that you've said that prayer, now start going to church and witnessing and reading your Bible because now you're saved. Oh, and get baptized, right? That's kind of how we do things. But look at this verse. Notice the past tense language. And if you have your notes and you're clever, you'll notice it's indicated by bold and italics. Verse five, he made us. You are saved. Verse six, he raised us and you are seated. Are those terms past, present, or future terms? They're past terms. And what's most important is not just the gospel in your past, but the gospel work in the past of the human race, in the past of God's cosmos. My friends, we were saved when Jesus rose victorious over sin and death. That is when you were saved. I am not saying that's when it came into your conscious awareness. I am not saying that that's when you begin to live differently in light of this revelation. I am saying, though, that's when it was secured, which is why it is silly to think it can be threatened by my temporary bad choices because it had nothing to do with my choice, but his choice that was motivated by his great love for me. That is the security of our salvation, my friends. As we said, the, lynch, the thing that holds us together is verse six. I'm sure of this, he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Our confidence is not in our commitment, willpower, or intention. Our confidence is rooted in the fact that God is committed to completing the work he begun in us. Now, would the worship team come forward? As we reflect upon this, we could all sit around and have a good cup of coffee and talk about all the tools that God uses to bring about this completion. I just want to mention three of them because I felt like we need to be reminded of these three. What are the tools that God uses to bring about this completion? Foolish choices, wise choices, and time. You cannot escape these three teachers. Foolish choices, wise choices, and time. Now I know that every one of you, a thinker, feeler, or doer, were offended or bothered by one of those that I highlighted and mentioned, and that's for your own work to do. But my point is we all struggle with at least one of these three. But this is what God uses. And when I say foolish choices, I'm trying to be nice to you. I am talking that your heavenly father is so wise and gracious. He factors in your self-centered sinful choices as part of your story of redemption. He weaves it into the story. Am I saying that we just go celebrate by sinning all the more? I am not saying that although that's what Paul was accused of whenever he preached the gospel. Go, go take a look at Romans 6. He has to clarify that because if you understand the gospel, it might be misunderstood that way. Why? Because God is so much more, the God of the scripture is so much more gracious with our sin than the God of most of our Christian religion. The, God, the small God of our Christian religion is a lot more insecure about our sin than the enormous God that fills the cosmos that's celebrated in the New Testament faith. Nothing can thwart his plans or intentions, not even your stupidity. And so God uses our foolish choices. He uses our wise choices. And the other thing you can't get behind is you can't speed this process up. He uses time. And he is into marinating, whereas we're into microwaving. He's not much interested in the microwave approach. He marinates and he takes his time and he's effective. So as we sing, as we close this time of worship, 
the prayer team, you will come, please come forward. We'll be here to pray with anyone who needs prayer. And um, you have a little space to respond to what the Spirit may have said. I want to encourage you to do one of these three things. Number one, maybe you need to remember a foolish choice and ask God to show you what motivated that choice and then confess the redemptive wisdom lesson that God taught you through the process. In order to recognize that grace, you have to stop and acknowledge what God, what the kindness of God has done. Or perhaps think of a wise choice. Ask God to show you how he directed you in that choice and then confess the affirmation of your growth in wisdom that resulted by you making a life-giving choice. Or maybe your issue this morning is time. The timing of God's process is determined by his goodness and his wisdom. It is not determined by the greatness or the weakness of your faith, as way too many of you have been told. It rests in his goodness, not your ability. God is committed to your transformation. Churches tend to be committed to your conformity. But what the gospel offers is something much deeper than conformity. The spirit invites you to trust his timing in the process while he transforms you to look exactly what a life of Christ would have looked like had he had your circumstances. Would you all stand with me as we